Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll be discussing the Department of Energy's report on the origins of COVID-19 and the end of Rod Dreher's blog at the American Conservative. But first, let's all go on a bank run. Uh, That may be what's happening in Silicon Valley this morning with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview here coming from uh, the good folks at the Dispatch and their morning Dispatch newsletter so we can get everybody caught up on what is going on. Uh, No one is likely feeling the daylight saving time hangover this morning more than the folks at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, who, along with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, spent the weekend scrambling to keep the second largest bank failure in the United States history from precipitating a broader economic meltdown. We'll officially find out if their efforts were successful when the markets open, which has happened. Uh, As far as I know so far, uh, nothing major, no major collapses yet. We'll get to that. Uh, The now-defunct financial institution in question is Silicon Valley Bank, dreamt up over a poker game and founded in 1983 to cater to the blossoming tech industry in, you guessed it, Silicon Valley. Startups flush with investor cash needed a place to park it, and bankers who understood the ins and outs of the burgeoning sector. SVB provided both. The pandemic-era tech boom was very good to SVB. As interest rates plummeted and tech valuations skyrocketed, startups raised a lot of money, and they put it in their local bank. Consumer deposits swelled from $102 billion to $189 billion in 2021, and the company said it banked 44% of the venture-backed tech and healthcare IPOs in 2022, down slightly from 55% in 2021. But the bank held assets of companies beyond Tech2, and as the recent, uh, as recently as a few months ago, SVB was the 16th largest bank in the country. Much of the recent deposit growth was driven by our clients across all segments, attaining liquidity through liquidity events, the bank wrote in a recent filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, such as IPOs, secondary offerings, SPAC fundraising, venture capital investments, acquisitions, and other fundraising activities, which during 2021 and early 2022 were at notably high levels. Like any bank, SVB did a variety of things with that money, fund and asset management, investing in tech companies, underwriting IPOs, even financing California vineyards and wineries. But it also placed an unusually large amount of its funds, 56%, compared to 25% at Fifth Third Bank and 28% at Bank of America, in long-maturity U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. In a low-interest rate environment, those bonds locked in a steady and relatively safe return but we're no longer in a low interest rate environment. As the Federal Reserve jacked up interest rates over the past year in its fight against inflation, those returns looked less attractive and the market value of those bonds sank. So much so that by the end of last year, SVB was sitting on unrealized losses of about $15 billion. Some investors saw warning signs and shorted SVB, 
But as recently as January, the bank had enough going for it that Wells Fargo analysts labeled its sunken stock price as, quote, the deal of the century. SVB wasn't panicking. It had hoped to hang tight and make it through by raising some money and holding the bonds until maturity. Only it didn't hold all those bonds. Elevated interest rates also put pressure on the tech bubble. And as investor money dried up, SVB's relationship with most of its customers reversed. Startups were no longer depositing money into the bank. They were drawing down what they'd stashed there to make payroll and other obligations. SVB needed to raise some cash to meet those withdrawals. So it sold a $21 billion portfolio of mostly U.S. treasuries at a $1.8 billion loss. To shore up the resulting hole in its balance sheet, SVB announced a capital raise of $2.25 billion. It made these moves uh, just after Silvergate, a smaller crypto-focused bank, said it'd be shutting down in the wake of the crypto meltdown. The decision plunged SVB straight into the bank run scene of It's a Wonderful Life, except it had no George Bailey honeymoon funds to tide it over. We skip forward a little bit here. Already jittery over the Silvergate failure, the close-knit world of venture capital and startups began passing the world in email chains, Slack threads, and tweets. Get out while you can. Certain VC firms, including Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, reportedly took out all their cash from SVB in the days leading up to its collapse and encouraged their portfolio companies to do the same. On Thursday, customers withdrew $42 billion, leaving SVB with a negative cash balance of about $958 million. Instead of clamoring in a bank lobby, customers swarmed SVB's online platforms, sending screenshots of error messages as they overloaded the system. SVB's stock price cratered until trading was frozen, and other banks' shares took a hit, too. Regulators waited uh, until close of business Friday to roll up, usually wait until close of business Friday to roll up a failing bank, hoping to get things sorted out by the time the market reopens on Monday. But in a sign of just how quickly SVP's catastrophe unfolded, California and the feds stepped in Friday morning to shut it down, citing illiquid- illiquidity and insolvency. The FDIC placed SVB in receivership and stood up a dummy financial institution instead, promising SVB customers would have, quote, full access to their insured deposits by Monday morning. But here's another area where SVB's unique market niche comes back to bite. The FDIC insures only up to $250,000 per account. And unlike at a typical bank, most of SVB's tech company and venture capital clients have way, way, way more than that on the books. Roku, the streaming hardware company on Friday, reported having about $487 million deposited with the bank. The average customer withdrawal at SVB was $4.2 million in late 2022. And nearly 96% of deposits were not covered by FDIC insurance, compared to just 38% for Bank of America. I think that is enough summary to give people an idea of what is going on here. So I will throw it open. What do we take away from what is going on here with uh, what, as the good folks at the dispatch pointed out here, is a niche institution in a way that, say, uh, Bank of America, Fifth Third Bank, BMO Harris are not, they are different. So we're having a different conversation about this than we were if we were doing this podcast, say, in 2008, and we're talking about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So I throw it open there. So this is, uh, it's the second largest financial institution failure since uh, 2008 in the United States. Um, And as you mentioned, it was, what, 16th, uh, you know, largest company uh, or or bank and I mean, that's so that's a huge deal. Um, but given that it's 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 uh, tech focus, 
Um, it is somewhat insulated from a lot of the rest of the economy. Um, I don't know that that's totally true, but we don't, I don't, so far at least, there's no reason to worry that this is going to have the same sort of ripple effects we saw in 2008. So that's, I guess, the good news. Um, the side of it that, that I think of, and maybe we can help, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to also a more kind of moral analysis as well, but uh, I, I hear stories like this. This is not my uh, forte. You know, I studied theology. Uh, I learned a lot of our economic stuff here on the job. Um, and as it turns out, economists actually don't know much about the stock market. That's not what they do. Uh, that's a common misconception. So this is important, and it's not unrelated to economics, um, but it's it's not as if any of us here are experts. Um, that said, I think, I think we can trace multiple causes uh, to the pandemic. Um, so first of all, we have, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast a few episodes ago, uh, we have massive layoffs happening in the tech industry. Um, and that is in part due to pandemic aid, uh, running out. So there was a lot of companies that would have downsized in 2020 that basically were paid not to by the government. Um, and it was, it would have, it would have cost them more to lay people off. Um, and so once that aid started running out, they, they had to make, you know, they had to make their, their debit, their, the debits and credits, uh, you know, balance. And so they had to, they had to downsize. So you see this, this kind of shrinking uh, of a lot of the capacity of tech industry firms, uh, as a result of that. Uh, the second thing is all the pandemic aid uh, economy-wide contributed to massive inflation, um, which is something that, as, as the article mentioned, uh, the feds are starting to get under control. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons uh, to not be super happy, even if things are under control, as our friend David Bonson would certainly point out. Um, but that said, the interest rate, rate hikes have been helping in some ways, and they've been necessary in some ways. But one of the Unintended consequences is it does mean that banks that were heavily uh, invested in bonds uh, are seeing real, real hits, and and uh, SVB is one of them. That to the point that you know had those bonds not eroded in value due to these rate hikes, they might still be in business. They might still be doing fine. Um, so that's two. What was the third one? Um, oh, the third one is crypto. Um, crypto was another huge aspect of. Uh, SVP, v VB's uh, capital, and it's something that ballooned uh, in 2020, um, in, in part, again, due to the, the pandemic and worries over the economy shutting down and, you know, Trump, people trying to find safe investments and, or at least willing to take a risk. So, you know, crypto, I think like Bitcoin went up to being like $60,000 uh, or more for a single Bitcoin. And then it tanked down to around 10000 something like that. And that's a huge loss, depending on how much you have invested in it, right? Um, so that's just three factors. I'm sure there are more than three factors that contribute to this. But all of those, I think, are traceable to the pandemic. And if not for perhaps even one of those, this bank might still be in business. So that's my short little causal contribution. For a quick uh, market update, uh, just so everybody knows at the moment that we are uh, talking right now, which is 1016 a.m. on the East Coast, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 0.02%. The S&P is down 0.25%. The NASDAQ 
uh, is up 0.3%. So uh, we're not seeing a huge amount of tumult in the market, at least not yet. Although, as the Wall Street Journal here is informing me, several regional bank stocks have been halted amid the SVB turmoil. So uh, Signature Bank is uh, one of those that has also been uh, shut down. Uh, So there are repercussions, but we're not looking. I mean, I remember pretty vividly what 2008 was like when Lehman Brothers was collapsing. Uh, This is not quite to the same extent that that was. So there is one cause and one cause only for this collapse, and that is the bank run. That is the, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that the books did not look great for SVB. There were all sorts of challenges they were facing. But up until customers began to withdraw large sums of money, what we were looking at was losses and not the destruction of a business. And what you have is you do not, you did not have the George Bailey to be able to make the case. And if you remember that scene in It's a Wonderful Life, what does he do? He says, oh, you know, well, how much money do you need? And he talks people down and they get through with the honeymoon money, what that would have been. But what you had in this bank, this bank is unique because many of its depositors have very, very large deposits. And many of those largest depositors were savvy people that paid attention to the financials of this institution and got their money out under the presumption that these deposits would not be insured or potentially could not be insured beyond the $250,000. So this is part of the risk of having a bank that caters to these very large deposit folks. And there should have been precautions in place to deal with that uh, as, as something that could happen. Now, when you look at one of the things I think when you're seeing, you know, you're not seeing a market downturn. I think you would have seen a much more severe market downturn had they not intervened to guarantee these deposits because there were many businesses already struggling. We talked about the tech layoffs earlier that, you know, these funds that businesses keep in banks are funds that they use for things like payroll, things for rent, things, you know, this is why they keep the money in the bank. And there is a presumption among businesses that you have your money in a regulated bank that this sort of thing isn't going to happen. And this is why so many people were caught flat-footed. And if you saw the anxiety in the business community in Silicon Valley over the weekend over this, I mean, people, people thought that this could be catastrophic. Now, the bank, in terms of moral hazard, is there moral hazard here? Yes. However, the SVP is done for. That board is gone. This is the, – the, the company is going to be liquidated. The depositors will be made whole, but nothing other than that. And I'm sympathetic Banking regulation is a moving target because you have the regulators also responsible for setting the interest rates, also responsible for uh, all sorts of the the actual money mechanics behind how funds get distributed to banks and circulate in the economy. And this is one of the challenges of the sort of post-Bretton Woods world that we struggle with. Now – 
there are models that would be better. I've written about, you know, cryptocurrencies before. This is part of the promise of a programmed monetary policy. Um, you have folks that are advocates for the gold standard, folks that are advocates for 100% reserve banking, where this sort of thing would not be possible. All of those things have their potential upsides, downsides, but this is the mix. This is the life we have chosen, is we have chosen to live in a highly managed, highly regulated environment. And those decisions are very, very poor. There's a recent academic paper, Tyler Cowen, uh, I think posted a link to this, on Marginal Revolution, that there were some scientists that were looking at what data scientists that were looking at what performs well on Twitter. And one of the outliers they had was people talking about other people being greedy. And this is why this is a story, because the image in everyone's mind is these Silicon Valley people have money. And that in some way they have been irresponsible with that money and that they should be punished for it. Um, so you have an energy and you are going to have politicians both on the populist left and the populist right looking at what has happened here and saying, look, you know, they guarantee. But this is this is the nebulous world we're in due to the commitments we've made since the since the Nixon administration. This is part of what that monetary policy entails. And I think this is a great time to have a conversation of if we want that sort of policy going forward or not. But I think what you'll get is a lot of commentators casting blame, talking about people uh, benefiting unfairly. And the reality of it is, is I think this is an intervention that needed to be made given the system that we have. Now, the system that we have, I think, is in need of revisiting. But unless politicians talk about those larger issues, all of this is just hot air. Let me give you something from uh, National Review's Philip Klein, who wrote about the moral hazard problem being created by what is being done here to address the failure of uh, SVB. Quote, Sunday's decision by regulators to bail out uninsured depositors of the failed Silicon Valley Bank would dramatically lower the threshold for federal intervention in financial markets. Defenders of this decision will try to make it seem uh, as if it's an extraordinary one-off decision by regulators, but in practice it has created a huge moral hazard by signaling that the $250,000 FDIC limit on deposit insurance does not exist in practice. The clear signal it sends is that when financial institutions make poor decisions, the government will swoop in to clean up the mess. Uh, So we're back to the argument that we were having in 2008 in a way over what kind of relief is actually appropriate? What action should the government take? Uh, that the you know I, I remember hearing the arguments at the time for people who weren't saying that there wasn't a moral hazard problem being created by what we did with TARP. It was just that it was absolutely necessary to prevent a much worse uh, catastrophe from occurring. I'm glad Dan brought up the point about uh, what this is going to do to populism because I've, I've heard the theory offered and I am generally, I think, an adherent to it that the populist wave that we are feeling now, even in the year 2023, 
still stems from 2008. It is a response to the response of what happened in 2008, that financial crises like this create populist movements and populist waves that have a very long tail. And I think this has, as Stan pointed out, uh, I'm expecting to see the normal cast of characters on the political left, on the populist left, who are going to condemn this. Like Bernie Sanders is going to be fit to be tied over the banks who are getting a bailout again and that kind of stuff. However, this is absolute like this is going to hit like crack cocaine to the populist right. They are going to be absolutely out of their minds and not entirely without justification, because, again, we are talking about. A, a, a niche market in a sense. This is Silicon Valley. These are all of these tech companies. The tech companies are already the kinds of entities that are on uh, the other side of the fervor of the populist right. Uh, we've seen a lot of the tech hearings that have been held in Congress that uh, there is a consensus for regulation of social media from both the left and the right, but for completely different reasons. And that is the kind of thing that I just am absolutely 100 percent certain is guaranteed to end up in some kind of a nightmare because both sides agree about something for different reasons. Uh, generally not good. Uh, generally not good. But it is a you know, it is it is interesting to me to see what the reactions to this are going to be. But I, I think it also is fueled by the fact that, you know, take Twitter for an example, since we brought it up already. A lot of the what we're talking about here, the funds um, coming from venture capital, uh, Twitter's problem, the problem I always saw with Twitter is I had no idea how they were going to monetize this product. I really didn't understand how they were going to start making money. And you know what? The reality is they still haven't really figured it out. I mean, they're charging $8 now for Twitter Blue if you want to subscribe to that and get the benefits of the uh, blue check mark uh, that was only previously available to you if you had been granted uh, sufficient status by the elites at Twitter. But their marketing platform, their advertising platform, is not really all that great. It doesn't uh, offer a whole lot of advantage over something like uh, what Google or Facebook has to offer. There just was never a really clear way that it was going to be monetizable. So I think people, while they couldn't articulate, many people perhaps couldn't articulate what I just did because they're not following this stuff as granularly as I do because I work in marketing. Uh, I think they have the sense of, of just like, how do these companies make money? What value are they actually creating? And then when they see something like this that happens with Silicon Valley Bank, like, the, like basically the private bank to all of these people who got big gifts of money from venture capitalists, and they look at it, and it, it absolutely strokes that impulse for populist rage. So I have a, I guess, somewhat contrarian take to that in that I think populist politicians will call well, they, they will try to capitalize on this, um, whether it be through fundraising for their own campaigns, yes. whether it be through trying to regulate in who knows what direction. Um, but I think the normal populace uh, to which they usually appeal um, has probably never heard of Silicon Valley Bank until this week. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not losing their homes. They're not losing their retirement. It's a different situation than 2008. Uh, it was felt in a, in a very concrete way. You know, people were deciding not to retire. People were moving back in with their parents despite, you know, having kids in their 30s or what. You know, I mean, people were in really rough situations. And um, 
so far, we're not seeing a wave of just not the situation. So you can't. There's there's no no, wave of home foreclosures happening right now. It's just not as tangible. I mean, yes, it's it's popular. It's something that you can um, grandstand about. But I I think you actually have to have uh, uh, an experience of people to tap into to really get get that same sort of wave. And maybe yeah, again, maybe maybe this is too contrarian of a take, but. Um, but, I, I think I don't think people are going to have a very difficult time, especially if we're the, we're talking about the people that I'm talking about, who are the kind who are uh, heavily online and enraged about these things that are happening. You know, it's the quintessential example of the whole Sora Bamari um, uh, libraries hosting uh, uh, Drag Queen Story Hour. It happened 3,000 miles away from where he lived. But because everything is online and feels like it's in your backyard, it feels personal, even if there isn't a personal attachment to it or there's nothing affecting you personally. I think the fact that this kind of information and, again, with this cast of characters being the one who are getting relief, I think there's enough there for that populist fuel. So let's look at the alternative world as this unravels. So let's say these deposits weren't. Insured. Let's say all of these people get their two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from the from the FDIC, and they're told them's the breaks. You have cascading failures of businesses, inability to make payroll, massive layoffs. This could trigger a wider recession because this, this a lot of these companies make up a lot of the value of our markets, like it or not. And that affects real people, that affects pension funds, that affects everything else. The other thing is, is when we talk about advocating for free markets, we want free, open, competitive markets. What happens when all of a sudden every investor has to make this calculus of where when they put their money? We will see an increasingly concentrated, less competitive banking sector. Why would you keep your money with anybody but J.P. Morgan or, or, or Citigroup, the most heavily capitalized banks? Why would you keep it with the 16th largest when you could keep it with the first largest and be afforded a greater level of security? The other potential option is that these folks just do go into U.S. Treasuries directly. And then you have, you know, because there's a government guarantee there on every single one of those. And that does not lead to, that leads to increasing wealth concentration. That leads to increasing uh, dependence on government set rates and government debt. All of these things that anyone on the populist left or right would recoil in horror over. And yet this would be precisely the result if you pursued this policy. Now, okay, is there is this the right balance? We can talk about that. Should these people have taken a 10% haircut for the moral hazard involved? Maybe, maybe not. But these decisions have to be made quickly and there is just as much behind the government policy in terms of interest rates and inflation that contributed to this on the front end as is involved in bailing it out in the back end. And if you're unable to grapple with those questions and the larger sort of questions of what sort of system we want going forward, this resentment gets no one anywhere. 
I want to enter in the record real quick. This was a statement that uh, our uh, Acton COOs, Stephen Barrows, who's a PhD economist, uh, provided to a news entity this morning on this story. Quote, Silicon Valley banks collapse is a clear example of why the Federal Reserve's efforts to stifle inflation is fraught with risk. The Fed kept interest rates too low for too long, and now the difficulties of a smooth exit strategy are manifesting themselves. As the price of its sizable bond holdings declined, SVB's exposure became evident. Reversing excessive expansionary monetary policy can come back to bite you in unforeseen ways, and the potential for similar episodes will likely factor into the Fed's assessment of the pace of future rate increases. So that's a, a perfect tee-up for what I wanted to say. Uh, you know, the point about moral hazard, moral hazard, for those who don't know, is when the person who takes the risk is not the person who bears the consequences of the risk not panning out. Um, that leads to people with making riskier choices because they don't have to bear the consequences. Um, I look at this. The bank is being liquidated. The board is gone. uh, And the stockholders are not being bailed out. The people who took the risk are are bearing the consequences. Um, The problem is uh, what motivated them for that risky behavior was a moral hazard problem. And it was not the sense of bailout, so that that can create moral hazard. I'm not disagreeing with that point. Um, but it was things like mortgage-backed securities uh, um, and bonds. It was the government uh, provided moral hazard. Um, and that's something that if you look at in 2008, one of the big uh, legislative um, corrections uh, was the Dodd-Frank uh, bill, um, which got a lot of criticism from people on the free market right but I looked at it, and I, I see where they're coming from on some things. But my major criticism was it only dealt with the private sector issues. So it, it upped the the percentage of reserves banks need to have, you know, things like that. But it did nothing related to the public sector side. So it just placed all the br- blame on the, the private sector, did nothing to correct the problem we had of government-subsidized uh, home loans um, and and other issues that were encouraging people to invest uh, in a lopsided, riskier way than they would have had the market not had that incentive for moral hazard. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that, that goes with, with uh, Steve's point in that, um, you know, Treasuries seemed like a great deal until they weren't, right? Um, and it it really was a riskier choice all along um, than anyone wanted to admit. But there was always kind of this this assumption that while this is, you know, uh, sorry, pardon the phrase, the gold standard of safe investments. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's not the gold standard of safe investments, um, literally and figuratively. Um, and and people are bearing the consequences now. I uh, had the pleasure, I believe it was in 2010, of participating in a debate with someone representing the Occupy Wall Street movement, where the question we were debating was who's to blame for the Great Recession, big government or big business? And I was fortunate enough to be able to go first. So I will now recite for you my entire opening statement for that debate, which is who's to blame for the Great Recession, big government or big business? The answer is yes. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. Like even the, you know, I I understood why people were occupying Wall Street, even if I think that it was somewhat misguided. Uh, K Street, 
would have been a very good place for people to also go set up and occupy for a while because they were equally, if not more, culpable in what transpired in 2008 than people on Wall Street were. Let's move on to our second topic, uh, which is this story uh, came out, uh, let's see, this piece here for the Wall Street Journal is on February 26th. So uh, we've had this for a little while and I've wanted to get to it. An analysis from the Department of Energy has concluded that a lab leak is the most likely origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't necessarily want to debate the merits of the conclusions that were found here by the Department of Energy, other than to say there were a lot of people who also put forth this theory that had some good backing and some good evidence and some good reason to suspect it. And it was considered for a good amount of time to be misinformation, that we knew how COVID happened, that it was somebody having undercooked bat soup at a wet market in China that caused it to jump from either bats or pangolins or some animal that people in China were consuming that I'm just going to go ahead and say we probably shouldn't be consuming. And that is how we got the COVID-19 virus. There is, and you go back to Jim Garrity's work at National Review, who was writing about this far earlier than most people, a very compelling theory that uh, it was a lab leak that caused the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, I'm not as much interested in debating the merits of that theory as I am in, I just think the, the point we should be taking away from this is... These efforts to determine in the moment what is and is not misinformation are almost always going to be fraught and problematic because you're going to have incidents like this where the people who are making those decisions, mostly on coming back to Silicon Valley, social media platforms about what could be said and what couldn't be said and what was misinformation – it's not that we know that they were wrong and that the people that were uh, advancing the lab leak theory were right. It's that it is a lot less clear and there is a lot less certainty about this. And we should be willing to admit what we don't know or couldn't possibly know, which again comes back to the larger point about these attempts to decide in the moment what is misinformation and what is not that we should have some humility about it, that we do not know, that future evidence may show things to be true or more likely to be true than we think they are in the moment. I know I've referenced this book on numerous occasions, but <clears throat> great book by Chuck Klosterman called But What If We're Wrong, where I, I think this is one of the best examples to illustrate it. <clears throat> Several hundred years ago, everybody thought that the sun revolved around the earth. And you would have been thought foolish for thinking otherwise. And now we look back at them and go, what rubes, right? How could they possibly think that? It was completely reasonable to think that at that point in time. It was wrong, but it was completely reasonable to think that. And we should have a little bit more humility about the things that we think we know for sure now because of the possibility and even likelihood that it is at least somewhat in error, if not completely mistaken. I mean, just to add to that, 
the official statement that saying that this lab leak is now the most likely explanation, I believe, is still listed as very low confidence. So it is it is the best bad explanation. <laughs> um, doesn't mean it, it couldn't be right. Um, but for a variety of reasons, we do not have the information we need to know. Now, maybe there is a record if it is truly like a lab leak uh, somewhere in China, but I don't exactly trust Chinese records. Yeah, right we're now. never getting that. Um, so if that is the case, I don't think we're ever going to have confirmation. Um, and if it's bat soup, I mean, how do you even, you know, there, there's just so much about this that we, we aren't going to get an answer. Um, and I realize that makes people uncomfortable because the pandemic was absolutely terrible. The the cost of human life, you know, millions of people died. Um, everyone knows someone uh, who lost someone or everyone did lose someone. This is this is not a simple matter. And when things like that happen, people want answers. They want an explanation. A lot of times they're angry and they want someone to blame. And I don't know that we're going to get that ever. Um, that's just unfortunately a reality of the world in which we live and the life in which we live. And um, people either face these things unprepared because they live in uh, a very comfortable fantasy that that's not the world we live in. Or, uh, you know, if you have maybe uh, a discipline of memento mori and you, you think of uh, the fact that we are all mortal, the things we hold to be. Uh, permanent are not. Uh, the only permanent thing is God. Um, everything else is changeable. Um, you will always be caught off guard by this sort of thing, and you will always be dissatisfied with the level of certainty available. Um, and it doesn't change things to say that, but it does change the way in which we respond uh, to adopt a, a more realistic, uh, ascetic sort of perspective. I think this is one of the reasons why conspiracy theories abound in circumstances where terrible things happen and we have very limited or little information about what happened and especially on the why side. I know I've made this point before, but the the Kennedy assassination is a perfect example of this. Uh, The most likely and in fact, it's almost I think at this point certain uh, explanation for how John F. Kennedy was killed was by Lee Harvey Oswald. Magic bullet. And there's no magic bullet necessary because our understanding of physics is is better now than it was in the 19, early 1970s when Jim Garrison was bringing the case and advanced the magic bullet theory. Um, but because something really terrible happened and the explanation for it was this 22-year-old former Marine who once defected to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union said, yeah, we don't even really want you just wasn't a very satisfying explanation for the murder of this incredibly consequential man. So we felt the need to put our finger on the side of the scale that Lee Harvey Oswald was on because it's just hard to accept that somebody so inconsequential could do something so consequential. But you know what? That's the world. That is entirely possible in this world. And it's understandable that people would have a hard time accepting something like that. But it is – you're right. The lack of – confirmable information about the origins of COVID-19 that are always going to fuel a whole bunch of different theories. And the fact that, you know, obviously China has no incentive whatsoever to uh, give us a confirmable reason why this happened is only going to make it worse. One of the interesting things about this recent sort of revelation of the Department of Energy's change of opinion is that 
The government itself seems to operate in a spirit of open inquiry. Maybe the FDIC thinks it's pulled pangolin, but they've got a research team on it that's developing the case. What we saw in the abortive attempt of a sort of like office of misinformation in the DHS, how would that affect internally in the government's own internal debates? It seems that we have a much more open, free sense of inquiry on these sorts of questions than many people who are agitating about, you know, there's, there's many crackpot theories dispensed on social media on, on not just this, but on seed oils and on, you know, a whole range of things that one could get upset about. But the people that are actually responsible for this seem to actually, for, for, for making these sort of serious inquiries at a, at a, at a governmental level, seem to be open to all possibilities and approaching this question, revising their theses on, on, on new evidence as it comes to light. And that is the encouraging part of this conversation. It's not, it's not so much, you know, oh, the Energy Department has vindicated this theory, but the Energy Department, at least, you know, the researchers are open to looking at all the evidence, revising their assessments, and that's what we want to see in responsible research in general, and particularly on these very sensitive questions that affect diplomatic relations with other countries, future pandemic responses. Um, so this is encouraging to see. Yeah, my thought is, you know, the the troubling side, as as Eric mentioned at the start, is how much this theory was being labeled as misinformation to the point that people's, you know, social media posts are being either flagged or blocked and um, that sort of thing. And I think we just need to come to terms with the fact that there's just a lot of crazy ideas on the Internet. And we don't. And need... there were a lot of crazy ideas before the yes, Internet. Right. We were we, just less aware we of We don't them. need warnings. Uh, it's not as if putting a warning on one is going to stop the thousands of others that no one's paying attention to. Um, so, I, I mean, to be charitable, I'm sure there was, you know, good intentions. I don't think anyone was in cahoots with the Chinese lab or something like that and trying to quell this theory. They genuinely thought it was misinformation. Um, but now it seems like at the very least uh, that was pre- presumptuous. Um, and And there's unintended consequences when you try to so tightly regulate information, especially in our information economy. Uh, We have this thing called the internet where people share, frankly, probably more misinformation than information. Um, We have some good sources if you want to learn some some solid things, but there's a lot of people just talking about stuff. And that's fine. That's normal. They're going to they're going to have like, have you ever had a conversation with, a, you know, at a bar or with a family member or whatever about any breaking news? And everybody, I heard this and I thought this. And what do you think of this idea? And that's normal. People do that. And we don't have to police that. That's just people talking. And I don't I, I don't think I, I, th- I hope the lesson we learned from this is we could take a step back. And yes, people are going to get upset about conspiracy theories and other sorts of things. But you know what? Just let them talk. Let them talk and keep doing, as you know, as Dan pointed out, keep doing the real investigation um, and come out with your statements of, okay, here's our confidence level on this theory and so on and so forth. And just keep doing your job. And eventually people will find their way there. I would make the argument that it is actually better now 
in a way than it was before. Because and at this point, I should really be getting royalties from Chuck Klosterman because I keep plugging his books. But his most recent book is called The 90s, which is about the kind of life and culture of the decade of the 1990s. And he makes some really interesting points in there about it's kind of the last uh, period of time where it was like there was a clear, discernible like culture identified with that decade and that, you know, the, the 2000s and the 2010s and now into the 2020s kind of blend together for me. Bucket but hats may- are back. Yes. Um, but he also he made this really interesting point in there about, you know, imagine yourself being at a bar on a Friday night and getting into some kind of a disagreement over some kind of a verifiable fact. Right. You know, uh, I was j- joking with our producer, Daniel, earlier about uh, the Oscars being last night that somebody tweeted out this photo of um, uh, from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom of Harrison Ford and I, I cannot remember his name, but the young actor that played short round in the film, uh, making the point that, you know, one of these actors has finally won an Academy Award. Also pictured Harrison Ford. Um, it was like the kind of things like, you know, Harrison Ford hasn't won an Oscar. And like people would be, you know, that's the kind of thing that if we're in like, you know, 1998, you would say that and somebody would go, no, he's, de- he's definitely won an Oscar. Like I know he's won an Oscar. That person would be wrong. But you would have a debate amongst each other about who was right about this verifiable fact, and then you would move on. There was no device that you could go to to verify these facts immediately. Now, of course, it's fraught with problems. This is the whole Wikipedia argument of the, you know, don't take what's written in Wikipedia as gospel, but you use the sources that are cited to help verify information that's there. I would argue in a way it's better. We have an opportunity to verify some information that is out there. But the point is about things like this, right? Things like what is the origin of COVID-19 that is difficult, if not impossible, to completely know. There's just – there are always going to be these things in life where we're just not going to know the full story, the truth about it. And I think there is a deep uncomfortability with that lack of certainty about what actually happened that does foster a lot of conspiracy theories. But also in the moment, again, it should – this should instill a sense of humility in the people who are making the kinds of decisions like flagging or blocking social media posts about this that, hey, you might be wrong too. There's nothing that says one of these positions is correct and the other is incorrect. It's just that it's way more complicated than this. And maybe we should let people have these conversations, let information, good and bad, flow freely and let people try to sort this out as best as they possibly can. Let's move on to our final topic. Uh, And Dylan, I'm just going to kind of let you take this one because I know you've been uh, uh, following this. But on Friday was the last entry in the blog of one Rod Dreher at the American Conservative, where that publication has lived for about the last 12 years. He's moving his writing over to Substack. In a way, this is kind of the end of an era of this kind of type of internet writing that is uh, very spur of the moment, just kind of stream of consciousness. Certainly much of Rod Dreher's writing at the American Conservative was stream of consciousness. Uh, he was kind of one of the last voices like that that was going. Uh, now that is uh, coming to an end. There's an interesting piece in Vanity Fair about uh, how the single financier of Rod Dreher's blog at the American Conservative that allowed him to post without anyone editing it. Uh, just straight to the American Conservatives website, uh, quote, got a little too weird. 
for that individual who was financing it. And as a result, it is coming to an end. He's moving to Substack. Dylan, your thoughts? Well, place a captain's hat on my head and call me Horatio Magellan Crunch because I <laughs> I never knew why Rod Dreyer uh, was able to just write and post everything he thought all the time at a major publication for so long. Uh, and then finally it comes to an end. So uh, the one one side that you've already mentioned is, you know, Rod got his start during the Wild West of blogging uh, when it was just, hey, I'm, a blog literally comes from web log, as in like captain's log, uh, to, to give another Captain Crunch reference, uh, uh, but also, you know, like a diary. Right. Um, and it was just people posting their thoughts and maybe some pictures. And um, that was that was fine. You know, a lot of people tried it and they did three posts and they were done. Uh, Rod Dreyer had a, a journalism background. Um, he had some opinions. He had a book, I believe, uh, at that point, And he was able to leverage that to gain an audience. Um, and. Eventually, he got his way onto the American conservative. It turns out, um, due in some part, or maybe in major part, to this big donor who was funding a six-figure salary, according to the Vanity Fair article. I don't know what range in the within those six figures, but uh, that a lot is, of range there. That is yeah. uh, impressive. Uh, you know, good for Rod uh, during that time. Um, it's amazing to me the reason. Uh, you know, they, they got too weird. I don't. I. I feel like it was, for me, too weird from the start. So I don't know how someone else's line was farther than mine, but apparently this is much, much farther than mine. I won't say the exact post or the exact phrase in the exact post, uh, but he wrote some post about, uh, you know, being, uh, when he was a kid, first time he, he had a friend at school or, you know, I don't, I don't even know if the kid was a friend. It was not a good post. Uh uh, and they they realized there was such a thing as not being circumcised. Um, so I won't I won't say the phrase because Daniel would have to use the bleeper, uh, which might be a first on the actual we'll, podcast. We'll just we'll throw um, the uh, the the original post itself into the show sure, notes and if, let if, people enjoy it that way. Yeah, if you if you have the courage. Um, uh, but it's the sort of thing that you know I I I look at the stuff that Rod had been writing, and it only could be possible if he were not being edited. Um, I am an editor. I think editors have a very valuable vocation and a genuinely moral vocation, not just for the protection of publications, although certainly the American conservative, I think, would have a different reputation had Rod been properly edited over all the years, um, not only for readers who would not have to read, <laughs> uh, not that anyone has to read, but you know what I mean, would not be encountering this sort of thing, but also for authors. Um, there is a disservice here to Rod Dreyer that no one was telling him, hey, you can't publish that. Um, now, maybe— Or you shouldn't, at least. Yeah, or you shouldn't. Um, and we've seen this in other cases in the past. Um, I don't—I I, I, I won't get into the details, but I um, have good reason to suspect that David Bentley Hart was not being edited at First Things. Um, and eventually, his comments went off the rails, and they got rid of him. Um, big surprise. No one was stopping it. No one was— was saying, hey, you need to rewrite this, or you need to revise that, or hey, we're not going to publish that. They just gave him the keys and let him let him do what he wanted. Um, so that this is really kind of an end of an era, and that Rod Dreyer was this artifact of this earlier age of blogging. Um, and I mean, you look at his new Substack; it is called Rod's Diary. 
right? Like he still has this old mentality. It's his diary and he's going to keep doing it. And maybe that'll be enough. I certainly uh, wish him well, I suppose. Uh, He's got some funding from uh, the Hungarian government uh, keeping him afloat. uh, And maybe he'll get enough subscribers to his Substack. although $50 a year to read Rod Dreyer is a little different than free. Uh, subsidized by a single donor. So I don't know how many readers he'll take with him. Uh, but it was, I know his 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 column, his blog, was a huge source of traffic for their website. Um, I'm sure that mattered to them. But there are a variety of reasons, and maybe Dan can get into the details so I, I can, because uh, he knows them a little better. But there's a variety of reasons where, even with that donor, Rod Dreyer may have become a liability, uh, more of a liability than an asset to the American conservative um, and so the other thing I'll say, because uh, I mentioned Hungary, uh, Rod Dreyer did uh, spark a minor international incident a few weeks ago uh, with Ukraine. He mentioned uh, some some comments he had heard from Viktor Orban uh, at a closed doors meeting. He just published for the world some comments about the EU and about uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, to the point where the Ukrainian, the ambassador to Ukraine had to be recalled uh, to Hungary. Um, and uh, so there, there's the guy created a mess. I'm surprised it wasn't for that. Um, I'm, there's a million reasons that I would I would have canceled this man's blog. I don't. And again, this is not a personal attack on him. I want to be very clear. I know there might be some listeners who like him or like his blog, um, but it was just not for me in a lot of ways. So I'll pass. The uh, I, I just want to take people back very briefly to like circa 2004 and the culture of blogging that existed there, which I did a little bit of. But the I think the problem that Rod was experiencing is if you go back to you know 2004 through say like 2008 2009, the culture of blogging like that was it was stream of consciousness, and if you had a thought or an idea, you would write it up quickly, you put it up there, and it became an open debate. Other bloggers would pick up what you wrote, they would. Create Critique it. You would go back and forth with them, and you would, you know, kind of sharpen your idea through this process. The problem is that doesn't exist in the same way anymore. It exists in the sense that there are plenty of people on Twitter or on Facebook who have opinions of what Rod Dreher has said or what other people who are bloggers in this sense have said. But it is not the same as, you know, people at National Review or people at the Weekly Standard who would pick up and respond to all of this. It, it's not it's not the same group of people anymore. It has been democratized. It has gotten far broader. And when it gets that broad, you as the author just tend to kind of disregard the pushback or the criticism or the other alternative takes that you get in response to yours. I think Rod continuing to write as if that culture existed, even though it didn't, is the kind of thing that leads almost inevitably to this overly confessional, uh, personal diary kind of stuff that is a stream of consciousness that just kind of reminds us for the same reason that if you're really annoyed at work and you write an email in that state of annoyance, wait 30 minutes before you send the email. Give yourself a chance to edit yourself before you put it out into the universe. And that just doesn't exist in this style of writing. You put whatever you think, whatever you feel in that moment, you express it immediately. And I think there's just there's a lesson in there for all of us how poorly served we are for trying to express everything we think and feel in the moment we think and feel it. We don't uh, none of us here were ever paid six figures exclusively for writing about what we think and feel at whatever given moment. 
but I can't imagine that that's good on anyone psychologically. The sharp edge of a razor is difficult to pass over. Thus, the wise say that the path to salvation is to stop being so weird. (laughs) There are, in addition to the sort of editorial problems, the sort of journalistic excesses of the blogging era that were sort of carried over, there's also this, to invoke the good captain again, this oops-all-culture-war nature of the blog. And we talked about this, Eric brought this up earlier, that many, many folks on the right find the most heinous examples of degeneracy throughout the world and broadcast them, including sometimes lurid descriptions and images. Um, which we just I think saw this is, over the weekend with some of the uh, curriculum or uh, things that were appearing in libraries in Florida, where there's a certain irony to if you're making the argument that uh, people shouldn't be exposed to this kind of material that you think it's pornography, to then retweeting the pornography that you are telling people they shouldn't be exposed to. Yeah. And, and when you are immersed in that environment and in which – and I'm sure, I'm sure you know, one of the things that has to be said is that Rod Dreyer is a successful writer. And I am absolutely certain he gets emails all of the time from readers sending him this sort of stuff. And I think that creates a sort of distorted vision of what the world is actually like and the challenges we actually face. And I think, you know, you always run the risk as an author, as a particularly successful author of audience capture. You always run the risks of getting into these sort of social media echo chambers. And I think this is a cautionary tale to all writers, particularly when you focus on what is a very salacious beat, um, which is what this beat has seemed to be about for at least as long as I've been aware of, of his writing. Yeah, I think there is a uh, there's a point that I've made about you know, what we have called cancel culture, that one of the problems that exists out there is you you don't have a forum for uh, forgiveness in people's transgressions. So you put something out there that is a, well, let's just assume for a minute that, and I'm not and certainly not saying that this is something that Rod Dreher has done, um, but just take you know an imaginary person who puts a, uh, a, a joke out there or a comment that is not outwardly racist. It's not with the intention of, you know, animus towards a, a race of people, but it's, it's the kind of joke that if someone made around you, you'd feel awkward about. In a person-to-person environment like this, right, you have the opportunity to pull that person aside and say, hey, that was really uncool. You probably shouldn't do that. In the internet world, however, two things happen to that individual. There's one group of people that wants to excommunicate them from society entirely with no chance for readmittance because they said something that was, again, insensitive. And I'm giving them the credit in this scenario of not being, you know, they're not David Duke, right? They're, they're not doing this on purpose. They have made, they've made a statement in error, in bad judgment. And it's the opportunity, again, in person-to-person court uh, conversations— to point that out to them in a loving and caring way. The other reaction that they will get online is they will find the people, you know, who occupy the 4chans and the 8chans of the world who go, no, 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 you're right. You're right about this. And you should continue with these thoughts and opinions. 
Nobody gets the corrective. They get two extremes thrown at them. So I, again, I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely right that like you, you get a lot of feedback like that. But again, who are the people who are going to take the time to write something like that to you? Usually people who are entirely in agreement with you and need to get it out or entirely in disagreement with you and need to get it out. So you don't get the kind of critical feedback that I think the, the early days of blogging gave the people who engaged in this kind of writing and journalism. And I, I don't know that anyone trying to operate like that in the year of our Lord 2023 are being well served by operating as if nothing has changed from 2004. There is a great piece um, about uh, the Internet of Beefs that we'll provide in the show notes that sort of talks about this transformation from – uh, a sort of dialogical blogging back and forth, serious interlocutors um, to one in which, you know, you get you get champions and you get their reply guys and their echo chambers and how they how they battle and how social media has sort of fundamentally restructured the incentives of, of what writing in public looks like today. Yeah, I mean, there. There are examples in the past uh, of similar behavior. Um, I just – it's more that there's just so much more of it today. So um, I think of uh, William F. Buckley debating Gore Vidal uh, and it, the conversation came to a point where Gore Vidal called William F. Buckley a fascist and William F. Buckley responded in a very improprietous way, uh, which again I will not repeat here. Uh you would think that after that, he would have said, you know what, I went too far. Instead, he published a 12,000-word defense in National Review of going too far. Um, so this thing happened. <laughs> this sort of thing happened mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't totally new, but but you you guys are right. I mean, we have this incentive stru- – or we had an incentive structure for people to do this. And then we had a certain feedback mechanism to correct it, and we've – gotten to a point uh, with, I think, positives and negatives where that does not happen. Um, So on the one hand, I don't think it's great for people to be entirely reckless and just to write whatever comes to their mind all the time and broadcast it to the world. That was, you know, an interesting experiment, and I think we have the results. And we should probably restructure as we've been doing to some degree, but but we also need forgiveness. So if you think of excommunication, that word comes from the church. Uh, someone who was excommunicated in the history of the church technically was not, you know, sometimes people translate it as condemned. Um, it's only, they're only condemned if they don't repent and come, you know, say I was wrong and come back. If they do, there's procedures to, to reintegrate them into the church um, to actually grant forgiveness. And we have uh, made a, a, a weird sort of, you know, spontaneous order church, uh, which has that disciplinary mechanism, although no canons to regulate it, and no canons or even notion of forgiveness. Um, so that's the world we've come to, and I don't think we should stick with that one either. Um, I think there there are better ways we can go. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. 
For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.